We will be uh, overviewing chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a pretty short chapter, and the themes run together. Do you know the effect that you have on other people? Are you aware of that? You have an effect, even just your presence has an effect. Um, your, and then certainly when you think about your attitude, your, your words and your actions, they all have an effect on the lives that are experiencing you. So it, it could be, you could say, maybe it sounds dramatic, but for life or for death, it could be for the strengthening of a person or for the weakening of a person. It could be for the encouragement, the building of courage and, 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 and having them be steadfast and press on and, and bringing them comfort. It could be for the encouragement of a person or for the discouragement of a person. Your presence has an effect. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young church in what uh, is in modern-day Greece. It was a, a church that he established during his second missionary journey. It's a church that we're told in which there were some Jewish converts and that there were many Greek converts. So it had some Jews, but it sounds like the majority of the church was Gentile. And it was a church that was under the pressure of severe opposition. So Paul writes to encourage this church. He, calls, he, he, he writes to encourage them to persevere through this opposition. And he does this always keeping the hope of Jesus Christ's second coming in view. And again, if he was encouraging those believers 2,000 years ago to keep the Lord's return in view, how much more do we 2,000 years later have the obligation to say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, right? That he could come anytime. Uh, you'll notice that even though obviously the original letters were not written down in chapter and verse, Every chapter, as it's broken down in 1 Thessalonians, each chapter ends with Paul reflecting one way or another on the Lord's return. We read in Acts 17 that Paul, after he established this church, uh, was only able to stay in Thessalonica for a short time. Uh, we don't know exactly how long that was. We know he was at least there for a few weeks because he went to the synagogue in, uh, during uh, three consecutive weeks. He was likely there a bit longer, but it, it was apparently a short time, and then he himself had to escape violent opposition. And in his absence, there were antagonists that, that rose up. Those antagonists both questioned the message that he gave, the message of the gospel, and the motives of the messenger. Why did he come? What, was it for his own benefit? Was it for greed? Why did he leave so hastily? Did he abandon you? 
Why hasn't he returned? The reality was is that Paul had a very deep, deep love for these believers. It's often, it's often very convicting to read of Paul's deep love for so many believers that he impacted across the known world at the time. And he had a burning concern for this church, um, especially because he had to leave in such haste. How were they faring, these spiritual infants under the pressure of such suffering? So let's read chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. That's a bit of the context there. He says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So Paul reminds this community in the face of people very likely questioning his motives, why he left, why he hasn't returned. He reminds them he has not abandoned them. He was torn away. In the original Greek, that, 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 that phrase is very strong. It actually, uh, it actually could be rendered that he had been orphaned from them. That, that's, the, that's the expression there, literally, that he had been orphaned against his will. And he says that they're out of sight, but not out of mind. And he expresses his great desire to have personally returned to them, these brothers, this new spiritual family. The, we, we think of the phrase brothers so casually right now in the church, brothers, sisters. But for them, it was the forming of a new family network in Christ. Uh, but his return was thwarted, Paul says. And it's interesting because he says it was thwarted because Satan stopped us. And we can ask, what, what stopped Paul literally? What stopped him? Was it, was it illness? Uh, was it something that was a travel complications? Was it something in Corinth? Many people think that he wrote this, this, this letter in Corinth um, that delayed him. Was it a threat against his original host? You remember that there was some uh, a, a legal action brought against his original host, Jason. If you read in Acts 17, maybe that was an ongoing threat. We're kind of left to guess. But we see again that, that though difficulties manifest themselves in the physical realm, much of what is actually happening in those, in those difficulties is really reflective of a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. It's interesting, though, the Bible doesn't always attribute such blockades to Satan. So here Paul says it's Satan that stopped us from being able to return to you. In Acts 16.6, we're told that Paul plans to go to Asia. Um, but he, he says that he's kept... By who? The Holy Spirit. He's kept by the Holy Spirit from going there. 
So there in that in that in those verses, you see the Holy Spirit stop Paul and his companions and redirect them. So I kind of ask myself, how in the world does Paul distinguish? <laughs> like, wouldn't you like to be able to do that? How does Paul distinguish between Satan thwarting plans and the Holy Spirit redirecting? And I, and I don't have a great answer for you. I'm sorry. I don't have all the answers. But see, Paul clearly had some spiritual discernment that he could see when it was Satan's hands stopping plans or when it was the Holy Spirit redirecting. It is interesting. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce suggests it was probably evident in retrospect, if not immediately, that one check worked out for the advance of the gospel and the other for its hindrance. Where I take comfort in this is that God is sovereign no matter what. And his sovereign hand will always have its way. And God will always ultimately have his way. Amen? So, so there's probably there may be times that we can distinguish, hey, this, that stopping was, seemed like a real hindrance, that seemed like a hand of the evil one. There may be something where we say, oh, no, that was probably God redirecting me. But regardless, I keep moving forward, and I trust that the Lord has a sovereign hand. Um, I, I'll never, I, I always love uh, in our lives, and this was just one example. Cheryl and I went to buy our first home, and we were really young. We were actually, how old were we? We were like 19 years old. So we got to, and we looked like we were probably 16 years old. So we wanted to buy our first home, and we looked at this little house in Beachwood, New Jersey, and man, we fell in love with this place. We thought this was the place, this was the house. This was the neighborhood. They were only asking a little more than we can afford. And we just, you know, we did the bidding thing. We'll start here, and they'll probably come here. And they just never, they never came there, you know. And we went through that for over a month, and, and we, were, we were really, really disappointed that we didn't get that house. We, we thought it was kind of a shoe-in. And then the next house that we kind of, that we, that we thought, well, maybe this is the place, the Lord just threw the doors open. I mean, it was so obvious that, that the Lord worked out all the details, and we ended up spending like 15 years there, and we saw, as in hindsight, this was the Lord's plan for us. This is where God is working out his sovereign will. We, we have friendships there and memories there, uh, friendships that are, still, that are still in touch today. Cheryl got to lead one of our, our neighbors to Christ there. We say, oh, that's what God had in store so sometimes I, I know there's so many situations in life that, that, we can, that we can feel like there's a closed door and a frustration, a, a job you didn't get, or, or maybe a, a dating relationship that you sure was going someplace and it didn't, or the, or the college application that was turned down, or the promotion that's overlooked, or, or the dream that, that you felt like the Lord had in your heart, but yet it's not yet realized. I just encourage you to put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. He has a sovereign hand. He is infinitely wise and infinitely good, and in the end, his good plans will not be thwarted. We do see, though, and we can't ignore that even within that, as we work that out, and God is working out his, his perfect plan within time and space, 
Satan, Satan gets his blows in, right? And, and Paul is very mindful of this reality that there's, there's an adversary that, that in which his meddling hand is trying to disrupt and trying to disrupt the harmony, the love, and the advancement of the gospel through the church. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we must not fear this enemy, but we should be aware of him, we should not underestimate him, and we should be ready to resist him. If there's a word that the scripture consistently gives us toward our interaction with our spiritual adversary, it's resist. And we resist him, and you can look at Ephesians chapter 6, a beautiful chap chapter at the end about um, all the Holy Spirit weaponry, weaponry that is at our disposal. 1 Peter 5, 8 through, 8 through 9 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. In other words, you're not alone in this. We have to remember that Scripture is also very, very clear that Satan, though he may win some temporary battles, knows the war is already lost. He knows that. We tend to forget that in the moment. We get so afraid. We get so frustrated. We say, oh, what are we going to do now? Well, God is still God of, a God of miracles. Amen? He's still a God that's moving among us. He's still a God that is saving lives. He's still a God that is calling what wasn't into reality, right? So Satan knows. In Revelation 12, 12, it says that the devil is filled with fury, and we have to be mindful of that. But why is he filled with fury? Because he knows what? His time is short. He knows his time is short. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Jesus assures us that ultimately the gates of hell will not prevail, or could be translated, prove stronger than his church. His church. It's amazing. It's amazing when I know myself. It's amazing when I spend time with Christians. I'm like, huh? Because the spirit of the living God is going to see it through. In this hope, Paul looks toward the blessing. He says, who, you know, he, he says this, these beautiful world, words, what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are glory and joy. And, and Paul looks to, toward the blessing of seeing these Christians stand in Christ upon his return. There'll be, this crown is, is, that, is that victory garland. There'll be like a victory garland on his head. Uh, the author Michael Holmes writes, To Paul, the Thessalonian church represents both the fruit and the evidence of his God-given ministry. Now, Paul, Paul's not one to boast. If he's going to boast, he teaches this. If he's going to boast, he's going to boast in Christ, right? So he's here, he's boasting in Christ, and he's, he's taking appropriate joy in the fruit of his obedience to the gospel. That's okay, right? So when you, when you are obedient to the Lord and you're obedient to the gospel and you see the fruit of that, and you see the fruit of that in your life and someone else's life, you can have appropriate joy in that. You can say, yes, God, you're awesome. 
I'll say yes, God, you're awesome. <laughs> Man. John Stott writes, For the Thessalonians were trophies of Christ crucified. What Paul seems to mean in this transport of love is that his joy in this world and his glory in the next are tied up with the Thessalonians, whom Christ through the apostles' ministry has so signally transformed. You know, so much that we spend our time on, even in quote-unquote ministry, is going to be burned up. It's going to burn up like chaff at the Lord's judgment. And we say, well, Christians aren't going to be judged. They are going to be judged. Christians have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, Christians aren't going to be as condemned, right? That's the phrase. Christians aren't going to be condemned. We're going to rise, as we sang this morning, in Jesus' victory. The Lord will look at you and say, you're righteous in Christ. We will stand before the judgment seat, but we won't be condemned. We'll be deemed as righteous because of Jesus' righteousness imputed on us and our sin imputed on him on the cross. That's the gospel. So with, with that dealt with, then we will move on to reward. And we have to say, what will survive the refining fire of God's judgment? It's those things that are done genuinely in faith and in hope, and in love. Right? Paul says that's what's going to remain in the end. Those things done genuinely in faith, hope, and love. Paul sees the lives of these, of these believers as something that he's invested in that would be a lasting joy into eternity. Isn't that awesome? Here's something I've invested in. Here's something I've spent my time in, and I am going to be able to joy in this throughout eternity. What are you investing your time in, your resources in, your gifts in, your energies, energies in? Are they things that you will be able to joy in throughout eternity? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So when I could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that you would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could, no long, I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. So we see here that Trials and opposition lead to certain temptations. Trial and opposition lead to certain temptations. Uh, Paul now, in his, in his writing of his letter, returns to his resolve to find out the condition of this fledgling church. 
And if he can't go, he's going to send Timothy. And, and what you don't really get in a lot of English translations is that his, his wording about sending Timothy is actually very strong in the Greek, stronger than most of our translations. He, 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 it's this sense of abandonment, this sense of chosen. He's like, it's like he's choosing to be deserted. He's choosing to be lonely by sending Timothy to these believers but he chooses that dis discomfort because he loves these people so much. Paul was deeply troubled that the, that the Thessalonians may have had their faith weakened or even just totally sabotaged by their trials and oppressors. He reminds them, hey, when I was with you, I told you this was the deal. I told you if you accept Jesus, right? We talked about this last week. If you accept Jesus, it comes with some suffering. It comes with some persecution. Those are the temporal things in eternity, right? We just talked about that. We're building things up forever. I told you over and over again. So, so what they were experiencing was just a confirmation of his teaching. But Paul knew that with suffering and persecution came another opportunity for Satan, whom here he calls the tempter. So I want to ask you really quick, so think about, think specifically about suffering, opposition, trials. What are the temptations that come in those seasons? You tell me. Bitterness. Why? Okay. Pride? I can do, okay, that's an interesting one. I can do it by myself, good enough. Loss of faith? What are you thinking there, Jeanette? Dis distractions. Right, right. So the opposite of kind of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Good. Disillusionment. Feel rejected. Yeah. Mm. Do you always feel that way? Okay. All right. Good. Kudos to you. That's, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cynicism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's, so there's all kinds of things that can happen there, right? When when we're going through trials and opposition, and there there can be a we could become crippled by fear. Um, fear is sometimes either it's either fight or flight or you freeze, <laughs> and and you can become crippled by fear. You can become so what Paul comes calls unsettled, that, that we're shaken, that we're disturbed, we're disquieted to our very core. We may, we may doubt God's goodness, right, and his faithfulness. We might feel rejected. We might feel abandoned. We might turn to old vices, right, things that we thought like, hey, I'm past that, and I've had victory in that, and all of a sudden I feel abandoned, I feel rejected, and is the Lord good, and how easy it is to fall 
back. We may become, as Cheryl shared, cynical or distrustful of others. Why try? Why, why enter into relationships they just hurt? And then comes bitterness. And ultimately become, becomes the relentless temptation to what? Give up. I was thinking it's, it's Job's wife's voice, right? Job's wife's voice after all that calamity. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Job, you moron. Are you still holding on to it? Curse God and die. And we have that relentless temptation to give up. At our men's breakfast this last Wednesday, we, we talked about Jesus in the desert. And the tempter came. And as Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, all, the, all that the tempter wanted to do was to run him off the track. But he resisted him with the word of God. And we will do well just to remember that when trial comes, when difficulty comes, when opposition comes, you're not going through anything abnormal. And temptation will come during that time. Expect it. Know it. Be ready for it. The last verse is 6 through 13. But Timothy has just now come to us. So now we have, again, we have Timothy sent and we have Timothy returning. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news. It's where we get, it's, it's where we actually get our word uh, evangelical. Good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. Isn't that beautiful just how personal that is? <laughs> He's told us how, how you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, others, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy you, you, we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God, the Father himself, and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God. Here we go again. The presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Here we see that we need not handle the temptations that come with trial and opposition alone. The Christian community should be a place of mutual strengthening and encouragement. Paul is overjoyed to hear Timothy's re report. You can, just, you can just sense it kind of jumping off the page, his excitement. 
Not only was this church surviving, they were thriving. Imagine he had spent just so many weeks with them, but they're not just surviving, they're thriving. Why? How? Because they were together enduring in faith, hope, and love. They made a choice to get together, stand firm in the Lord. They refused to doubt God's goodness, even in the face of suffering. They refused to let go of the truth of His word and His promises. They refused to be crippled by fear. They refused to grow cynical and bitter. They refused to revert back to their old vices. They refused to give up. What a beautiful picture of this kind of reciprocal encouragement between the apostle and these disciples. Back in chapter 3, verse 2, Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage this young church. The Greek word for strengthen is used a lot of other times in the New Testament. It has to do with the, the instruction and training and discipleship and teaching uh, that, that builds us up, especially young believers, as we follow the Lord. But his presence was also supposed to encourage them. It was supposed to inspire courage in them and to bring them comfort and I'm sure they pondered on the Lord's promises together. I'm sure they, they wept together and shared one another's burdens. I'm sure Timothy talks about reports of what God was doing in other places. But in turn, Paul and his companions, who had been so deeply concerned about what's going on over there, and is Satan having his way, and are they like a nest that was, that was exposed with these little, these little hatchlings that a hawk swoops in and takes... He, they were just so concerned of the danger and vulnerability this young church has, and now they get this great report. And Paul says that, that they themselves were encouraged because of the Thessalonians' faith, even in the midst of their, of Paul and his companions' distress and persecution. Their, pers their perseverance inspired Paul. How cool is that? He goes as far as to say that now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. John Stott again points out how Paul's life was in... in <laughs> I said this well when I was reading in my mind. Inextricably, inextricably, and that word means inextricably means to be bound together, uh, to 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 it, for it to be impossible to disentangle. They were inextricably bound up with their lives together. Their suffering was mutual, but so was their joy, and so was their strength, and so was their courage. Do you see your life as bound up? with the lives of other believers. That's really what the, one of the things that should be a part of the local expression of God's church, that our lives are bound up together. Difficulty, trials, suffering, opposition, and the temptation that come with all these are assured. But it's within Christian community that we're meant to together, our lives bound one to another, find strength, and courage and encouragement. You're not meant to do that alone. 
So I ask you again, do you know the effect that you can have on others? Your presence, your words, your attitude, your actions. It could be for life. It could be for death. It could be to strengthen someone right next to you. It could be to weaken them. It could be to encourage them. It could be to discourage them. Think of what your impact, if, just be honest for a minute, think about your impact last week in the lives of others, in the lives of believers. Think about what you said to them, what you said about them. Was it for strengthening and encouraging? Or was it a justified, if I could call it, in our minds, a justified gossip and slander under the pretense of doing good? Well, I was just trying to be helpful. <laughs> so I was just trying to be helpful. So I needed to talk about him or her uh, again and again and again and again to multiple people. Well, that does sound helpful. For the audio recording, I'm being sarcastic. No. How often we gossip under the pretense of doing good. <laughs> Scott Sauls, in his book, Irresistible Faith, writes, Our chronic tendency is to crank up the volume on the serpent's voice of accusation and bondage and to dial down the volume of the Father's voice of pardon and freedom. Ann Voskamp once encouraged a church, and this was written in, in Scott Saul's book. She encouraged, and this is wonderful. If you're going to write anything down, here's something to write down. Ann Voskamp encouraged this church, only speak words that make souls stronger. Only speak words that make souls stronger. That doesn't mean you don't speak hard words, that you only speak easy words, but you only speak words that make souls stronger. Uh, Scott Souls openly ponders, if all our Christian communities and churches were sold out on this one simple practice, to only speak words that make souls stronger, I wonder how many spiritually disengaged people would start wanting to engage. I wonder how many religious skeptics would want to start investigating Christianity instead of keeping their distance and from its claims and its followers. Do you wonder the same? And then he goes on to write, it's been said that the best outreach is to become the kind of community that we would want to be a part of and the kind of community that's difficult to find anywhere else. As we wrap up here, Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 12 that one of the marks of the last days, one of the defining marks of the, of the final days of the earth is that the love of most, he said, the love of most will what? Grow cold. That's one of the defining telltale signs of the last days, that the love of most will grow cold. 
And Paul, as he thanks God for the work in the lives of the believers, you hear him pleading with God for the opposite. That their agape love may increase and overflow. And it just keeps building up and increasing and overflowing and building up and increasing and overflowing toward one another in the Christian community, toward those who are yet to know Jesus. One commentator simply wrote, the church would need love to survive. Hmm. The church would need love to survive. How true. Then again, with an eye on the Lord's second coming, Paul prays that this church would grow in their spiritual maturity. He longs to be a part of that, to supply what's lacking in their faith desiring that they will be found blameless and holy at the Lord's return. Paul never expects the Christian life to be static, but that it would always be growing in faith, hope, and love. Temptations will come. There's trial. There's opposition. But strength and encouragement should come just in the Christian community. My prayer is that this is true for you and for me. For us as we move forward even into this week I'll invite Daniel up for the last song and I'm just going to as a prayer read these last two verses again hear this as a prayer may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen.